everyone, my name is Grant, and you are listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 5, Karamanlis and Corsairs. So in our last episode, we covered what was going on in Turkey between the failed counter-revolution of April 1909 and Italy declaring war on the Ottoman Empire in September of 1911. The Ottoman Empire has been in a precarious position for some time, with most of its non-Middle Eastern territory having been taken away by other powers. One of the last pieces of the non-Middle Eastern Empire that was still in Ottoman hands were the provinces of Tripolitania and Cyrenica, which make up the modern-day country of Libya. Italy, having finally unified in 1861, was late to the game of European imperialism, and compared to most of Europe, were considered a second-rate power. In order to find its place in the sun and recover some of the lost glory of the Roman Empire, Italy eyed up the geographically isolated provinces of North Africa as an easy win. However, before we can get to the war itself, I feel the need to backtrack the narrative a bit. We need to understand what's been going on in Libya for the last century or so. The Ottoman Empire first conquered the land that is now Libya in the early 16th century, not long after they defeated the Mamluks of Egypt. At first, the Ottomans ruled Libya semi-directly, and by semi-directly, I mean they appointed governors to the provinces, but gave them a pretty free hand. Libya was never a significant source of wealth for the Ottomans, so they more often than not left them to their own devices. This means the sultans in Constantinople at different points had more or less control of what was going on, and this laissez-faire attitude allowed the Karamanli dynasty to take power in Tripoli. The Karamanli dynasty was a family of Janissaries that had intermarried into the local Arab and Berber populations, thereby creating a class of people who were half Turkish and half Arab or Berber, referred to as the Kologli. Unlike the Turkish governors or European converts, the Kologli were very popular amongst the locals. The appointed governors were quite corrupt, lining their pockets with overly high taxes and bribes. Now, it's bad enough when the powers that be are corrupt, but it's even worse when they are both corrupt and inept. And that's what the pre-Karamanli governors were like. So, in this context, an enterprising man with a moderately sized armed force could gain control of the situation with little popular backlash. And steps in Ahmed Karamanli. At this time, there was something of a power struggle between the appointed governor, Muhammad Halil ibn al-Jin Pasha, and the admiral of his fleet. Ahmed saw an opportunity to take control of Tripolitania himself in 1711, when Halil Pasha was outside the country. With the support of the army, and in particular his cavalry regiment, he occupied the city of Tripoli. There was an attempt by the Sultan to restore Halil Pasha with a Turkish flotilla, but Ahmed denied him entry into Tripoli. He justified his lack of compliance, claiming that the order to restore Halil Pasha was not valid because it was signed by the Grand Vizier rather than the Sultan. But in order to sweeten the pot and consolidate his own independence, Ahmed invited all the leading Turkish officials and supporters to a banquet, where he then had them massacred. He then confiscated all of their wealth and possessions and sent them to the Sultan as a gift. Well, the Sultan, always strapped for cash by this point, was more than mollified and granted formal recognition to Ahmed as Pasha and the Karamanli family as the rulers of Libya. Like all Muslim rulers who seek to establish their greatness, the Karamanli built mosques 
at least two mosques in the city of Tripoli can be attributed to them. The Karamanli Mosque, built under Ahmed, and the Gurki Mosque, built under his grandson, Yusuf. Under Ahmed, the governors of Tripoli would gain control over the province of Cyrenica. Cyrenica was a pretty rambunctious province, which is why Ahmed and his successors would send members of the family, often potential heirs, to cut their teeth on governing the toughest province. Ahmed also made sure to keep good relations with the European consuls in Tripoli, making deals as seen necessary. Ahmed would rule Tripoli until 1745, when he decided to voluntarily hand power over to his younger son, Muhammad Pasha, skipping over his older son, Mahmud. This was most likely done because Muhammad's mother was Libyan, while Mahmud's mother was Turkish. Giving the throne to Muhammad was probably intended to ingratiate him with the masses better. For the last few years before handing over the throne, Ahmed had been sick and blind, but had managed to keep it covered up. However, he was probably having a harder time keeping it secret by the 1740s, so he decided to end things on his own terms. After he received word that the Sultan had acknowledged his son as his successor, Ahmed went into his private quarters and shot himself. Had he known what kind of ruler Muhammad Pasha was going to be, he may have put off his suicide a little longer. Muhammad Karamanli was not like his father. In his reign, which lasted from 1745 to 1754, he was known for being easily manipulated by special interest groups, such as the Arab tribes from the interior of the country, the Saharan caravan merchants, as well as the army. For reasons I couldn't find, Muhammad Pasha was succeeded by his brother, Ali Pasha I, in 1754. And unfortunately for the Karamanli, his reign was longer, and no better because of it. A French consul in Tripoli said this of Ali in 1790. He rules, but is not obeyed. Shut up in his harem, he builds nothing, repairs nothing, and lets all collapse. He did very little of the actual governing of his provinces and left most of the day-to-day -day decisions up to a group of Christian apostates. On top of the bad governance, the reign of Ali Pasha was also hit by natural calamities. Trade routes along the northern Sahara saw severe droughts during the 1780s, which were followed up by outbreaks of plague. In Tripoli, 90% of Christians either died or fled the city, along with about 50% of the Jews and 40% of the Muslims. Overall, an estimated 27,000 people are believed to have died. These calamities, plus economic stagnation, pushed the rulers to levy heavier taxes on the tribes, who were either too poor to pay them, or too prideful to give in to the rule of Tripoli. Tribes that were often at civil war with themselves, such as the Alawud Suleiman, united under the leadership of people like Saif al-Nasir. As internal problems grew worse, a rivalry began to emerge between Ali's sons, Ahmed, Hassan, and Yusuf. The three sons had been gathering different factions and interests to support their respective claims to the throne. But in 1790, the boy's mother tried to resolve their conflict by getting them to come together in the same room and talk things out. Hassan and Yusuf met with their mother, and Yusuf took advantage of one of his rivals being unarmed and in the same room as him, and shot him. After this altercation, Hassan was dead and their mother wounded. The only punishment Yusuf suffered from this event was to be appointed governor of Misurata, which showed to everyone in Libya, as well as the Ottomans back in Constantinople, that Ali was not capable of punishing murder, even if the victim was his own son. 
On top of the weakness that became prevalent in Ali, Yusuf also had difficulties in Musurata. The people of Musurata refused to allow Yusuf to enter the city, and this was bolstered by the Alawad Suleiman under Saif al-Nasir supporting them. This slight would create a bitter hatred between the tribe and Yusuf that would last for the rest of Yusuf's life. The Ottoman government took advantage of the instability of Tripoli in order to reassert direct control of the province. In 1793, they sent a fleet carrying Ali Burgol, a Christian apostate from Georgia, and landed him in Tripoli, where he and his men wreaked havoc and gained control of the city. This invasion resulted in the Karamanli claimants temporarily putting their differences aside and seeking help from the Kologli. From their safe haven in Menshia, they sought aid from the Bey of Tunis, Hamuda ibn Ali, to help restore them to power. The Bey of Tunis, probably not liking the precedent of Ottoman government coming in and removing local rulers from power, sent military aid to the Karamanli in 1795, who managed to kick out the Turkish-backed invaders and re-establish themselves in Tripoli. After they set themselves back up in Tripoli, the fighting between Karamanli continued. In 1796, Ali Pasha was pressured to abdicate the throne in favor of Ahmed. Yusuf, however, was having none of this. He and his supporters took control of the city's citadel, thereby controlling the strongest position in Tripoli. This forced Ahmed to flee from the city and travel across North Africa in exile. Things were in a pretty bad state for Tripolitania, and Yusuf wanted to make it great again. But there wasn't enough trade for the government to tax for revenue, so he took to the tried and tested means of re-establishing wealth for the North African powers. Piracy. Piracy had been a fairly prevalent thing in the Mediterranean since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. There were periods of fluctuation, but it was always there. For the Islamic pirates of North Africa, the reliance on piracy was tied to the degree of Islamic control of the Mediterranean. When the Ottoman Empire was on the ascendance, there wasn't much need for piracy, but this all changed in the late 16th century. On October 7, 1571, a battle occurred between the Ottoman navy and a combined fleet from the Spanish Empire, the Venetian Republic, and numerous other Italian states in the Gulf of Patras and Western Greece. This clash, known as the Battle of Lepanto, resulted in a Christian victory. It did for the seas what the sieges of Vienna did for Ottoman expansion on land, and halted it. From that point on, the Mediterranean was not considered an Ottoman lake, and another century or so would eliminate Islamic powers from the equation altogether. Since the Ottomans no longer controlled all the sea lanes, the powers of North Africa became limited in their means of economic solvency. Losing control of the Mediterranean would not have been so bad had the Saharan and Silk trade routes remained the only viable alternatives, but by this point, they weren't. After the Ottomans conquered Constantinople, Christian Europe lost all direct contact with the Silk Road via the Black Sea. To compensate for this, the Portuguese put their circumnavigating of Africa into double time, setting up ports along the coasts, and eventually setting up shop in India. On top of that, Columbus's arrival in the Americas redirected a lot of European trade towards the Western Hemisphere, which had little to no means of producing manufactured goods. This also impacted the Saharan trade routes, from which ivory, gold, and slaves were transported from Western Africa across the desert into Cyrenica and Tripoli. If the Europeans wanted these things, they could go directly to the source, rather than going through the Islamic world as a middleman as they had done for centuries. So the navies of North Africa, 
often referred to as the Barbary Coast in reference to both the native Berber population and from the European perspective, the adjective form of barbarian went back into piracy, oftentimes referred to as corsairing. Barbary ships would attack weak and undefended European ships. In the process, they would try to capture the targeted ships rather than sink them because the pirates could return them to port, fix them up, and raise their own flag over them. There was also the possibility of the ship getting ransomed back to its owners, but considering how expensive the building materials for ships were in North Africa, due to the lack of force and all, that wasn't done very often. Along with capturing the ships, they also took whatever goods were on board and sold them in the Mediterranean ports. And of course, the most infamous thing the Barbary pirates were known for, capturing the crews of European ships and selling them into slavery, was indeed a thing. Most of the ships that got captured by Barbary pirates were Spanish, French, and Italian, which meant that most of the captured slaves were from those countries. And something that isn't talked about as much is how this capturing and enslaving enemies at sea was also done by the Europeans, especially the Spanish. They would attack Muslim ships in the Mediterranean, capture their crews, and hold them as slaves in Spain. There are some similarities between the capturing of slaves by piracy and the far more infamous Atlantic slave trade, such as persons being taken against their will and sold as property far from home. However, there were some important differences. When talking about the chattel slavery of the Atlantic slave trade, there is the popular yet apocryphal image of white slavers storming an African coast, tying up whatever dark-skinned person they can find and dragging them onto their ships, where they would later be sold at a far-off port. This, as referenced before, isn't how the slave acquisition part of the Atlantic slave trade worked. European slavers would go to African ports, travel a bit inland and make deals with African tribal leaders who had captured people in warfare and traded them to the Europeans for manufactured goods. This popular yet apocryphal image of the Atlantic slave trade has far more in common with the enslaving of the Mediterranean corsairing. There are recorded instances of Spanish ships raiding the North African coast and picking up anyone they could and bring them back to Spain, and the same was done in reverse. A big difference, however, in how the Europeans and North Africans did their slave raiding is that the Europeans more or less kept themselves geographically constrained to North Africa, while the Barbary pirates went a lot further out to find captives. There are recorded instances of Barbary pirates sailing as far away as Iceland, storming the shore, kidnapping whoever was there, and bringing them all the way back to North Africa. The biggest difference, though, between these two kinds of enslaving was the motivation for them. The Atlantic slave trade was purely an economic venture. There were many excuses that the Europeans came up with to justify the taking of Africans as slaves, but at the end of the day, they took them to do work that whites either couldn't do or weren't willing. The enslaving by piracy, on the other hand, was very much a diplomatic tool. The Barbary pirates captured Christian sailors and held them in slavery in North Africa, and then offered their country of origin the opportunity to pay a ransom to get them back. The same was done by Europeans who captured Muslims at sea and held them as slaves. Now, now this also... Now, this also serves as an economic interest of the governments participating, because more often than not, the ransoms were paid to the respective governments rather than to the enterprising individuals who captured them. That's one thing I don't recall ever being offered to the families and tribes of African slaves being taken across the Atlantic. So, in summation, slavery by means of piracy was not fun, and by modern standards, it was inhumane. 
but Atlantic slavery was still worse. So now that we have this historical background of North African piracy, let's get back to the narrative. Since their ascension, the Karamanli had made themselves the protectors of corsairs and encouraged their activities. By the time they had come to power in 1711, the nature of piracy and taking captives had changed a bit. Protestant nations no longer took Muslims as slaves, and all the powers of Europe preferred to purchase safety from the pirates rather than fight them. So the business model of the pirates had changed from capturing unprotected ships, selling off the goods and ransoming off passengers and crews, to harassing as much European shipping as you can while taking hostages until the European governments are willing to pay an annual tribute in exchange for the release of held prisoners and the abstention from corsair attacks on ships flying the flag of that nation. All the major European powers bought these peace treaties. The British, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Danes, Swedes, and even the Austrians purchased them and covered the costs of some of the Italian states under their control. One nation, however, wasn't able to pay for this protection. A fledgling republic on the edge of the civilized world, the United States. The U.S. relations with the Barbary pirates began as soon as the War of Independence was over in 1783. For the past century, American ships sailing the Mediterranean were protected by the same treaty that protected British ships, and for even longer, Americans held the same view of the Barbary pirates and the Islamic world that the British had. They were told the same stories of the horrendous treatment that Christian captives faced in Barbary prisons. Some of these stories were true, some were exaggerations, but regardless of which were which, there was an ever-present fear of it. In 1784, the first American ship, the Betsy, was taken by Moroccan pirates. Morocco had been the first country to recognize the United States as an independent nation, or at least the Sultan had claimed, and yet they were capturing American ships. As a sign of good faith, he let the American captives go before a treaty could actually be signed. But this event still put a sense of dread into the American public. Two of America's diplomats and future presidents, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, were in Europe and would be the first ones to attempt negotiations with the Barbary states and try to gin up money for the release of American captives. And the two had very different responses to the Corsairs. Adams, although disliking the idea of Christians paying Muslims tribute, was not in favor of going to war with the pirates. America didn't have the financial resources to fight them, and the danger posed to American shipping was driving insurance prices up. Adams was in favor of a more immediate solution, which was to take the same course the Europeans had, which was to buy a peace treaty with the pirates. Jefferson, on the other hand, was out for blood. Thomas Jefferson was usually a pacifist, preferring peace and trade with all nations, but when it came to pirates, he was in favor of armed force. As someone who believed in free trade, Jefferson saw piracy as antithetical to Republican values. He also didn't like the precedent that paying tribute to the Barbary pirates would set. He thought about it similarly to how political leaders think about terrorism today, and that is, if you give into their demands, they are just going to continue committing acts of terror and making threats. This idea can be directly linked to the wars fought between the U.S. and the Barbary states. If we keep paying the ransoms for captives, or pay tribute to the Barbary states, what's to stop them from resuming piracy every time they want to increase the amount of tribute given to them? And this did happen with other Christian nations. The difference, though, between the U.S. and European nations is that the U.S. doesn't have a navy that can stand up to the pirates if they got too uppity. This would be one of Jefferson's goals in early Republican politics. 
The first official representative from the Barbary states that Adams and Jefferson would get to meet was Tripoli's ambassador to London, Abdel Rahman. In February of 1786, Adams made what was intended to be a short visit to the ambassador to drop off his card, but he ended up having a much longer meeting, despite the difficulty of communicating through an interpreter. Adams would meet with Al-Rahman twice before Jefferson joined him. In those first two meetings, Adams learned of a cultural aspect to the Barbary pirates and their diplomacy. From the perspective of the Barbary pirates, they were at war with any non-Muslim nation that they didn't have a peace treaty with, even if that nation had committed no acts of aggression against them. He also discovered that the Barbary states granted their diplomats far more power than the United States did, because Al-Rahman offered a treaty right there and then, and could sign it and it could go immediately into effect. While Adams had to get approval from Congress back in the United States. Jefferson would join Adams' third meeting with Abdal-Rahman in March of 1786, where they would both be hit by something else that might sound familiar to us today. The meeting began with Adams and Jefferson explaining to Al-Rahman that the U.S. was not as rich as the European nations, and therefore couldn't afford the same prices that they were paying for peace. The ambassador explained to them their two options, either a temporary peace treaty that could be renewed, or a perpetual peace treaty. The difference between the two is that the initial payment for the temporary peace treaty would be lower than that of the perpetual one, but each time you renewed the treaty, the price for maintaining peace would get more and more expensive. On the other hand, the perpetual treaty would be more expensive up front, but would cost less over time. Adams favored this latter deal, but Jefferson was against paying the pirates at all. When Jefferson and Adams asked Al-Rahman why Tripoli and the other Barbary states attacked Christian ships, even though there was no hostility between the two nations, Al-Rahman said it was about religion. The ambassador said to the two Americans that it was written in the Quran that all nations who have not acknowledged the authority of Muslims over non-Muslims were sinners, and that it was the right and duty of all Muslims to make war upon the non-believers and to make slaves of their enemies, and that all who died in this struggle would be rewarded in paradise. So when you hear certain people talk about Islam being the roots of violence and terrorism, it's not something made up by Islamophobic right-wingers. Muslims have used that same justification themselves. Now, I'm not saying that all Muslims believe this, or even a majority, but this explanation originated from Muslims themselves. Both Adams and Jefferson were somewhat shocked to hear this, and they both reacted to it in different ways. Adams, a religious man, was inclined to believe the ambassador at his word. From his point of view, it made sense, and it meshed with all of the stereotypes and stories he had heard about Muslims throughout his life. Jefferson, on the other hand, was hesitant to take Al-Rahman at his word. Jefferson believed that Al-Rahman and other Barbary pirates were using a religious argument to justify their purely material and secular goals. Or as put by America's latter consul to Algiers, Richard O'Brien, money is their god and Muhammad their prophet. Perhaps Jefferson was right, and it was all just an excuse for high seas theft. Or perhaps Adams is right, and this was a holy war being waged against Christendom. Well, regardless of which factor was the greater motivator, the U.S. was not in a position to challenge them on the water. So Adams recommended that Congress take up the perpetual peace deal, hoping that the reduction in targeting of American ships would bring down insurance prices and increase trade. The U.S. wouldn't begin to make any real ground on this issue until after the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the election of President Washington. 
In the early history of the federal government, the budget included payments to Barbary states in exchange for the release of captives. And even after the peace treaties were finally made, the money earmarked for upkeep of those treaties would take up anywhere between an eighth and a fifth of the annual budget. However, the U.S. wasn't just giving in to the pirates. Under President Washington, a bill was passed to begin the construction of a navy. This path to eventually resist the pirates continued under John Adams, when under his presidency the U.S. Navy was founded as a separate branch of the armed forces. However, Adams was still reluctant to use the navy against the pirates, believing that the financial cost of destroying them was greater than the cost to purchase peace. This policy would be reversed under President Jefferson, when Yusuf Pasha had Tripoli declare war against the United States. Now, there are varying answers as to why this war occurred. From the U.S. perspective, the war started when Tripoli violated their treaty by demanding an extra payment, to which President Jefferson refused. Defenders of Tripoli tend to blame the U.S. for constantly being late on their tribute payments, of which they were. In response to Jefferson's refusal to pay, Tripoli declared war by their usual means of cutting down the flagstaff in front of the U.S. consulate in the city. Jefferson's response was to send the still young navy into the Mediterranean and hopefully intimidate the Tripolitanians into a more favorable peace term. However, William Eaton, the U.S. consul in the neighboring Tunis, had a couple alternatives. He first suggested that the U.S. invade Tunis and overthrow its ruler, with the intent to strike fear into the other Barbary states. However, Secretary of State James Madison squashed that plan for the same reasons that John Adams never wanted to directly confront the pirates. Eaton was distraught at first, but then he met a potential ally who hated Yusuf Karamanli just as much as he did. Ahmed Karamanli. Yes, the brother whom Yusuf drove out of Tripoli five years earlier shows up again in Tunis and meets with William Eaton. William Eaton proposes to Secretary Madison that the U.S. back a coup to overthrow Yusuf and install Ahmed on the throne as an ally, or more accurately to Eaton's desires, a puppet. However, Madison was not interested in this plan either, and in 1803, Eaton was banished from Tunis for some uh, financially duplicitous actions. But he was determined to get Ahmed on Tripoli's throne. His opportunity would come again after the USS Philadelphia was captured by Tripoli. His plan was greenlit in May of 1804 when he was appointed the U.S. agent to the Barbary States. He set sail for Egypt, where he met up with Ahmed, and together they put together a force to overthrow Yusuf in March of 1805. It was something of a motley crew, composed of nine Americans, 90 Tripolitanians, 63 European mercenaries, and 250 Bedouins. It was difficult finding armaments, and Eaton was constantly having to give out money to the soldiers, especially the Bedouins, in order to keep the force together. They marched 500 miles through the desert between modern-day Egypt and Libya. And on April 25th, Eaton and his small army, along with two ships of the U.S. Navy, attacked the city of Darna and captured it. Eaton was ecstatic at the prospect of finally getting Ahmed on the throne, but in late May, before he could begin his march on Tripoli, Eaton received word that the U.S. was giving up on the mission and had made a favorable peace deal with Yusuf. Eaton once again was distraught and would spend the rest of his life cursing Jefferson and his administration for what he saw as cowardice. This wouldn't be the last conflict between the U.S. and the Barbary states. They would finish their fights with the pirates in 1815 with the defeat of Algiers, in which the United States turned the tables on the Barbary pirates. The U.S. would demand not only the release of all of Algiers' captives, 
but also demanded compensation for damage done to U.S. trade and property. The defeat of Algiers was leveraged into similar deals with Tunis and Tripoli. After 1815, the Europeans began to fight the pirates instead of just paying them off. This was partly done out of inspiration from and humiliation by the United States. The U.S. at this time was not seen as the superpower it is today, but rather something of a backwater. So the fact that it was the Americans who were the first to put the screws to the Barbary states probably shamed the Europeans a bit. The other major reason they started fighting the pirates was because the Europeans were done fighting each other. The continent of Europe was more or less in a constant state of war from the coming of age of Louis XIV through the rule of Napoleon Bonaparte. After this, the continent of Europe wouldn't see another continental-wide war for another century. Since they were no longer killing each other, they finally had the time and resources to start killing the pirates. By the 1820s, most European naval powers had the strength to take down Tripoli on their own. And when the Ottoman Sultan called on Tripoli to aid them in putting down the Greeks who were fighting for independence, they had only two ships to send, and they were both destroyed in the Battle of Naravino. By the 1830s, the Mediterranean as a whole was free of piracy for the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire. During all of this, Yusuf Karamanli managed to retain control of the throne. But that was about it. The city of Tripoli itself was under his control, but the rest of the provinces nominally under his dynasty were no longer obeying his law. The biggest source of revenue, piracy, was gone, and it wasn't coming back. On top of that, the Trans-Saharan trade routes began redirecting westward towards the Atlantic coast rather than the Mediterranean. On top of that, civil wars between the tribes along the Sahara also hampered what little trade was still heading north towards Tripoli. Rebellion broke out in 1831 across the interior of Libya, which was exasperated when a British squadron arrived and threatened to bombard Tripoli if debts owed to the British weren't paid. Yusuf tried to raise the funds by levying an extraordinarily high tax on the people. However, this caused a rebellion to break out in the city of Tripoli itself in 1832, which forced Yusuf to abdicate the throne in favor of his son, Ali II. By 1834, Libya had been in a state of near-civil war for three years. On top of that, the Barbary states of Algiers had been invaded and annexed by France in 1830. Out of fear of more territory being annexed by the European powers, the Ottomans invaded Tripoli in 1835 and crushed the rebels in the city. Ali was then taken onto the Ottoman ship and arrested. After 120 years of near independence, Libya was back under direct control of the Ottomans. And I think that's where I'm going to stop for now. I have a lot more that I need to tell you about Libya before the Tripolitanian War, but I'm already a day late while recording this. So I'm going to split the content I originally had planned for this episode into two parts. So stay tuned for the next episode, where we are going to find out what happened after the Ottomans retook control of Libya, and all of the internal developments that would impact 20th century Libyan politics. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at thehistoryofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com, or on Twitter at hmme underscore podcast. If you want to know the sources that were used for this episode, you can go to historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com and look up this episode where you'll see a list under the header Bibliography. Thanks for listening.